Part two, chapter four of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies. Part two, Wild England, chapter four, The Canoe. Felix had scarcely worked half an hour before Oliver returned and threw himself on the ground at full length. He had wearied of fishing. The delicate adjustment of the tackle, and the care necessary to keep the hook and line from catching in the branches, had quickly proved too much for his patience. He lay on the grass, his feet towards the stream which ran and bubbled beneath, and watched Felix chipping out the block intended to fit into the secret opening or locker. "'Is it nearly finished, then?' he said presently. "'What a time you have been at it!' "'Nearly three months.' "'Why did you make it so big? It's too big.' "'Is it really? Perhaps I want to put some things in it.' "'Oh, I see, cargo. But where are you going to launch it?' "'Below the stones, there.' "'Well, you won't be able to go far. There's an old fir across the river down yonder, and a hollow willow has fallen in.' "'Besides, the stream's too shallow. "'You'll take ground before you get half a mile.' "'Shall I?' "'Of course you will. "'That boat will float six inches deep by herself, "'and I'm sure there's not six inches by the thorns.' "'Very awkward.' "'Why didn't you have a hide boat made "'with a willow framework and leather cover? "'Then you might perhaps get down the river "'by hauling it past the shallows and the fallen trees.' "'In two days' time you would be in the hands of the gypsies.' "'And you would be Sir Constance Eyre.' "'Now, come, I say, that's too bad. "'You know I didn't mean that. "'Besides, I think I'm as much his heir as you now,' "'looking at his sinewy arm. "'At least he doesn't listen as much to you. "'I mean the river runs into the gypsies' country "'as straight as it can go.' "'Just so.' "'Well, you seem very cool about it.' "'I'm not going down the river.' "'Then where are you going?' "'On the lake.' <whistles> "'Whistling. "'Pooh! Why, the lake's, let me see, to Heron Bay it's quite fifteen miles. "'You can't paddle across the land.' "'But I can put the canoe on a cart.' "'Aha!' "'Why didn't you tell me before?' "'Because I did not wish anyone to know. "'Don't say anything.' "'Not I. "'But what on earth, or rather on water, are you driving at? "'Where are you going? "'What's the canoe for?' "'I'm going a voyage, but I will tell you all when it is ready. "'Meantime I rely on you to keep silence.' The rest think the boat is for the river. I will not say a word. But why did you not have a hide boat? They are not strong enough. They can't stand knocking about. If you want to go on a voyage, where to, I can't imagine, why not take a passage on board a ship? I want to go my own way. They will only go theirs. Nor do I like the company. "'Well, certainly the sailors are the roughest lot I know. "'Still, that would not have hurt you. "'You are rather dainty, Sir Felix.' 
My daintiness does not hurt you. Can't I speak? Sharply. Please yourself. A silence. A cuckoo sang in the forest, and was answered from a tree within the distant palisade. Felix chopped away slowly and deliberately. He was not a good workman. Oliver watched his progress with contempt. He could have put it into shape in half the time. Felix could draw and design. He could invent, but he was not a practical workman to give speedy and accurate effect to his ideas. "'My opinion is,' said Oliver, "'that that canoe will not float upright. It's one-sided.' Felix, usually so self-controlled, could not refrain from casting his chisel down angrily, but he picked it up again and said nothing. This silence had more influence upon Oliver, whose nature was very generous, than the bitterest retort. He sat up on the sward. "'I will help launch it,' he said. "'We could manage it between us, if you don't want a lot of the fellows down here.' "'Thank you. I should like that best.' "'and I will help you with the cart when you start.' Oliver rolled over on his back, and looked up idly at the white flecks of cloud sailing at a great height. "'Old Mouse is a wretch not to give me a command,' he said presently. Felix looked round involuntarily, lest anyone should have heard. Mouse was the nickname for the prince.' Like all who rule with irresponsible power, the prince had spies everywhere. He was not a cruel man, nor a benevolent, neither clever nor foolish, neither strong nor weak, simply an ordinary, a very ordinary being, who chanced to sit upon a throne because his ancestors did, and not from any personal superiority. He was at times much influenced by those around him, at others he took his own course, right or wrong, at another he let matters drift. There was never any telling in the morning what he might do towards night, for there was no vein of will or bias running through his character. In fact, he lacked character. He was all uncertainty, except in jealousy of his supremacy. Possibly some faint perception of his own incapacity, of the feeble grasp he had upon the state that seemed outwardly so completely his, occasionally crossed his mind. Hence the furious scenes with his brother, hence the sudden imprisonments and equally sudden pardons, the spies and eavesdroppers, the sequestration of estates for no apparent cause— and following these erratic severities to the suspected nobles, proclamations giving privileges to the people and removing taxes. But in a few days these were imposed again, and men who dared to murmur were beaten by the soldiers or cast into the dungeons. Yet Prince Louis—the family were all of the same name—was not an ill-meaning man. He often meant well— but had no stability or firmness of purpose. This was why Felix dreaded lest some chance listener should hear Oliver abuse him. Oliver had been in the army for some time, 
his excellence in all arms, and especially with lance and sword, his acknowledged courage and his noble birth, entitled him to a command, however lowly it might be. But he was still in the ranks, and not the slightest recognition had ever been taken of his feats, except, indeed, if whispers were true, by some sweet smiles from a certain lady of the palace, who admired knightly prowess. Oliver chafed under this neglect. "'I would not say that kind of thing,' remarked Felix. "'Certainly it is annoying.' "'Annoying! That is a mild expression. Of course every one knows the reason. If we had any money or influence it would be very different. But Sir Constance has neither gold nor power, and he might have had both.' "'There was a clerk from the notaries at the house yesterday evening,' said Felix. "'About the debts, no doubt. "'Some day the cunning old scoundrel, "'when he can squeeze no more interest out of us, "'will find a legal quibble and take the lot. "'Or put us in the blue chamber, "'the first time the prince goes to war and wants money. "'The blue chamber will say, "'Where can we get it? Who's weakest? "'Why, Sir Constance? "'Then away with him. "'Yes!' "'That will be it. Yet I wish a war would happen. There would be some chance for me. I would go with you in your canoe, but you are going you don't know where. What's your object? Nothing. You don't know yourself.' "'Indeed?' "'No, you don't. You're a dreamer.' "'I am afraid it is true. I hate dreams.' After a pause, in a lower voice, "'Have you any money?' Felix took out his purse and showed him the copper pieces. "'The eldest son of Constance Aquila with ten copper pieces,' growled Oliver, rising, but taking them all the same. "'Lend them to me. I'll try them on the board to-night. Fancy me putting down copper! It's intolerable!' working himself into a rage. I'll turn bandit and rob on the roads. I'll go to King Yo and fight the Welsh. Confusion! He rushed into the forest, leaving his spear on the sward. Felix quietly chipped away at the block he was shaping, but his temper, too, was inwardly rising. The same talk varied in detail, but the same in point, took place every time the brothers were together and always with the same result of anger. In earlier days Sir Constance had been as forward in all warlike exercises as Oliver was now, and being possessed of extraordinary physical strength, took a leading part among men. Wielding his battle-axe with irresistible force, he distinguished himself in several battles and sieges. He had a singular talent for mechanical construction. The wheel by which water was drawn from the well at the palace was designed by him. But this very ingenuity was the beginning of his difficulties. During a long siege he invented a machine for casting large stones against the walls, or rather put it together from the fragmentary descriptions he had seen in authors whose works had almost perished before the dispersion of the ancients, for he too had been studious in youth. 
the old prince was highly pleased with this engine, which promised him speedy conquest over his enemies and the destruction of their strongholds. But the nobles who had the hereditary command of the siege artillery, which consisted mainly of battering rams, could not endure to see their prestige vanishing. They caballed, traduced the baron, and he fell into disgrace. This disgrace, as he was assured by secret messages from the prince, was but policy. He would be recalled so soon as the prince felt himself able to withstand the pressure of the nobles. But it happened that the old prince died at that juncture, and the present prince succeeded. The enemies of the baron, having access to him, obtained his confidence. The baron was arrested and immersed in a heavy fine, the payment of which laid the foundation of those debts which had since been constantly increasing. He was then released, but was not for some two years permitted to approach the court. Meantime, men of not half his descent, but with an unblushing brow and unctuous tongue, had become the favourites at the palace of the prince, who, as said before, was not bad, but the mere puppet of circumstances. Into competition with these vulgar flatterers, Aquila could not enter. It was indeed pride, and nothing but pride, that had kept him from the palace. By slow degrees he had sunk out of sight, occupying himself more and more with mechanical inventions, and with gardening, till at last he had come to be regarded as no more than an agriculturist. Yet in this obscure condition he had not escaped danger. The common people were notoriously attached to him. Whether this was due to his natural kindliness, his real strength of intellect and charm of manner, or whether it was on account of the uprightness with which he judged between them, or whether it was owing to all these things combined, certain it is that there was not a man on the estate that would not have died for him. Certain it is, too, that he was beloved by the people of the entire district, and more especially by the shepherds of the hills, who were freer and less under the control of the patrician caste. Instead of carrying disputes to the town to be adjudged by the prince's authority, many were privately brought to him. This, by degrees becoming known, excited the jealousy and anger of the prince an anger cunningly inflamed by the notary Francis and by other nobles. But they hesitated to execute anything against him, lest the people should rise, and it was doubtful, indeed, if the very retainers of the nobles would attack the old house, if ordered. Thus the baron's weakness was his defence. The prince, to do him justice, soon forgot the matter, and laughed at his own folly that he should be jealous of a man who was no more than an agriculturist. The rest were not so appeased. They desired the baron's destruction, if only from hatred of his popularity, and they lost no opportunity of casting discredit upon him, or of endeavouring to alienate the affections of the people by representing him as a magician, a thing clearly proved by his machines and engines, which must have been designed by some supernatural assistance. But the chief, 
as the most immediate and pressing danger, was the debt to Francis the notary, which might at any moment be brought before the court. Thus it was that the three sons found themselves without money or position, with nothing but a bare patent of nobility. The third and youngest alone had made any progress, if such it could be called. By dint of his own persistent efforts, and by enduring insults and rebuffs with indifference, he had at last obtained an appointment in that section of the treasury which received the dues upon merchandise, and regulated the imposts. He was but a messenger at every man's call. His pay was not sufficient to obtain his food, still it was an advance, and he was in a government office. He could but just exist in the town, sleeping in a garret, where he stored the provisions he took in with him every Monday morning from the old house. He came home on the Saturday, and returned to his work on the Monday. Even his patience was almost worn out. The whole place was thus falling to decay, while at the same time it seemed to be flowing with milk and honey, for under the baron's personal attention the estate, though so carelessly guarded, had become a very garden. The cattle had increased, and were of the best kind. The horses were celebrated and sought for, the sheep valued, the crops the wonder of the province. Yet there was no money. The product went to the notary. This extraordinary fertility was the cause of the covetous longing of the court favourites to divide the spoil. End of Part 2 Chapter 4《パート2 Chapter 5 of After London》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jeffreys. Part 2 Wild England Chapter 5 Baron Aquila. Felix's own position was bitter in the extreme. He felt he had talent. He loved deeply. He knew that he was in turn as deeply beloved, but he was utterly powerless. On the confines of the estate, indeed, the men would run gladly to his bidding. Beyond, and on his own account, he was helpless. Manual labour, to plough, to sow, to work on shipboard, could produce nothing in a time when almost all work was done by bondsmen or family retainers. The life of a hunter in the woods was free, but produced nothing. The furs he sold simply maintained him. It was barter for existence, not profit. The shepherds on the hills roamed in comparative freedom, but they had no wealth except of sheep. He could not start as a merchant without money. He could not enclose an estate and build a house or castle fit for the nuptials of a noble's daughter without money or that personal influence which answers the same purpose. He could not even hope to succeed to the hereditary estate, so deeply was it encumbered. They might indeed at any time be turned forth. Slowly the iron entered into his soul. 
This hopelessness, helplessness, embittered every moment. His love increasing with the passage of time rendered his position hateful in the extreme. The feeling within that he had talent which only required opportunity stung him like a scorpion. The days went by, and everything remained the same. Continual brooding and bitterness of spirit went near to drive him mad. At last the resolution was taken. He would go forth into the world. That involved separation from Aurora, long separation, and without communication, since letters could be sent only by special messenger, and how should he pay a messenger? It was this terrible thought of separation which had so long kept him inactive. In the end, the bitterness of hopelessness forced him to face it. He began the canoe, but kept his purpose secret, especially from her, lest tears should melt his resolution. There were but two ways of travelling open to him, on foot, as the hunters did, or by the merchant vessels. The latter, of course, required payment, and their ways were notoriously coarse. If on foot he could not cross the lake, nor visit the countries on either shore, nor the islands, therefore he cut down the poplar and commenced the canoe. Whither he should go, and what he should do, was entirely at the mercy of circumstances. He had no plan, no route. He had a dim idea of offering his services to some distant king or prince, of unfolding to him the inventions he had made. He tried to conceal from himself that he would probably be repulsed and laughed at. Without money, without a retinue, how could he expect to be received or listened to? Still, he must go. He could not help himself. Go, he must. As he chopped and chipped through the long weeks of early spring, while the easterly winds bent the trees above him, till the buds unfolded and the leaves expanded, while his hands were thus employed, the whole map, as it were, of the known countries seemed to pass without volition before his mind. He saw the cities along the shores of the great lake, he saw their internal condition, the weakness of the social fabric, the misery of the bondsman. The uncertain action of the League, the only thread which bound the world together. The threatening aspect of the Cymry and the Irish. The dread North, the vast northern forests, from which at any time invading hosts might descend on the fertile South. It all went before his eyes. What was there? behind the immense and untraversed belt of forest which extended to the south, to the east and west. Where did the great lake end? Were the stories of the gold and silver mines of Devon and Cornwall true? And where were the iron mines from which the ancients drew their stores of metal? Led by these thoughts, he twice or thrice left his labour, and walking some twenty miles through the forests and over the hills, reached the summit of White Horse. From thence, resting on the sward, 
He watched the vessels making slow progress by oars, and some drawn with ropes by gangs of men or horses on the shore, through the narrow straits. North and south there nearly met. There was but a furlong of water between them. If ever the north came down, there the armies would cross. There was the key of the world. Excepting the few cottages where the owners of the horses lived, there was neither castle nor town within twenty miles. Forced on by these thoughts, he broke the long silence which had existed between him and his father. He spoke of the value and importance of this spot. Could not the baron send forth his retainers and enclose a new estate there? There was nothing to prevent him. The forest was free to all, provided that they rendered due service to the prince. Might not a house or castle built there become the beginning of a city? The baron listened, and then said he must go and see that a new hatch was put in the brook to irrigate the water-meadow. That was all. Felix next wrote an anonymous letter to the prince, pointing out the value of the place. The prince should seize it and add to his power. He knew that the letter was delivered, but there was no sign. It had indeed been read and laughed at. Why make further efforts when they already had what they desired? One only, the deep and designing Valentine, gave it serious thought in secret. It seemed to him that something might come of it another day, when he was himself in power, if that should happen. But he too forgot it in a week. Some secret effort was made to discover the writer, for the council were very jealous of political opinion, but it soon ended. The idea, not being supported by money or influence, fell into oblivion. Felix worked on, chipping out the canoe. The days passed, and the boat was nearly finished. In a day or two now it would be launched, and soon afterwards he should commence his voyage. He should see Aurora once more only. He should see her, but he should not say farewell. She would not know that he was going till he had actually departed. As he thought thus, a dimness came before his eyes. His hand trembled, and he could not work. He put down the chisel and paused to steady himself. Upon the other side of the stream, somewhat lower down, a yellow wood-dog had been lapping the water to quench its thirst, watching the man the while. So long as Felix was intent upon his work, the wild animal had no fear. The moment he looked up, the creature sprang back into the underwood. A dove was cooing in the forest not far distant, but as he was about to resume work, the cooing ceased. Then a wood-pigeon rose from the ashes with a loud clapping of wings. Felix listened. His hunter instinct told him that something was moving there. A rustling of the bushes followed, and he took his spear, which had been leant against the adjacent tree. But, peering into the wood, in a moment he recognised Oliver, who, having walked off his rage, was returning. "'I thought it might have been a bushman,' said Felix, replacing his spear. "'Only they are noiseless.' 
"'Any of them might have cut me down,' said Oliver, "'for I forgot my weapon. "'It is nearly noon. Are you coming home to dinner?' "'Yes. I must bring my tools.' He put them in the basket, and together they returned to the rope ladder. As they passed the pen by the river, they caught sight of the baron in the adjacent gardens, which were irrigated by his contrivances from the stream, and went towards him. A retainer held two horses, one gaily caparisoned, outside the garden. His master was talking with Sir Constance. "'It is Lord John,' said Oliver. They approached slowly under the fruit-trees, not to intrude. Sir Constance was showing the courtier an early cherry-tree, whose fruit was already set. The dry, hot weather had caused it to set even earlier than usual. A suit of black velvet, an extremely expensive and almost unprocurable material, brought the courtier's pale features into relief. It was only by the very oldest families that any velvet or satin or similar materials were still preserved. If these were in pecuniary difficulties they might sell some part of their store, but such things were not to be got for money in the ordinary way. Two small silver bars across his left shoulder showed that he was a lord-in-waiting. He was a handsome man, with clear-cut features, somewhat rakish from late hours and dissipation, but not the less interesting on that account. But his natural advantages were so overrun with the affectation of the court that you did not see the man at all being absorbed by the studied gesture to display the jewelled ring and the peculiarly low tone of voice in which it was the fashion to speak beside the old warrior he looked a mere stripling the baron's arm was bare his sleeve rolled up and as he pointed to the tree above the muscles as the limb moved displayed themselves in knots at which the courtier himself could not refrain from glancing. Those mighty arms, had they clasped him about the waist, could have crushed his bending ribs. The heaviest blow that he could have struck upon that broad chest would have produced no more effect than a hollow sound. It would not even have shaken that powerful frame. He felt the steel-blue eye, bright as the sky of midsummer, glance into his very mind. The high forehead, bare, for the baron had his hat in his hand, mocked at him in its humility. The baron bared his head in honour of the courtier's office and the prince who had sent him. The beard, though streaked with white, spoke little of age. It rather indicated an abundant, a luxuriant vitality. Lord John was not at ease. He shifted from foot to foot, and occasionally puffed a large cigar of Devon tobacco. His errand was simple enough. Some of the ladies at the court had a fancy for fruit, especially strawberries, but there were none in the market, nor to be obtained from the gardens about the town. It was recollected that Sir Constance was famous for his gardens, and the prince dispatched Lord John to Old House with a gracious message and request for a basket of strawberries. Sir Constance was much pleased, but he regretted that the hot, dry weather 
had not permitted the fruit to come to any size or perfection. Still there were some. The courtier accompanied him to the gardens, and saw the water-wheel, which, turned by a horse, forced water from the stream into a small pond or elevated reservoir, from which it irrigated the ground. This supply of water had brought on the fruit, and Sir Constance was able to gather a small basket. He then looked round to see what other early product he could send to the palace. There was no other fruit. The cherries, though set, were not ripe. But there was some asparagus, which had not yet been served, said Lord John, at the prince's table. Sir Constance set men to hastily collect all that was ready, and while this was done, took the courtier over the gardens. Lord John felt no interest whatever in such matters, but he could not choose but admire the extraordinary fertility of the enclosure, and the variety of the products. There was everything, fruit of all kinds, herbs of every species, plots specially devoted to those possessing medicinal virtue. This was only one part of the gardens, the orchards proper were farther down, and the flowers nearer the house. Sir Constance had sent a man to the flower-garden, who now returned with two fine bouquets, which were presented to Lord John, the one for the princess, the prince's sister, the other for any lady to whom he might choose to present it. The fruit had already been handed to the retainer who had charge of the horses. Though interested in spite of himself, Lord John, acknowledging the flowers, turned to go with a sense of relief. This simplicity of manners seemed discordant to him. He felt out of place, and in some way lowered in his own esteem, and yet he despised the rural retirement and beauty about him. Felix and Oliver, a few yards distant, were waiting with rising tempers. The spectacle of the baron in his native might of physique, humbly standing hat in hand, before this court messenger, discoursing on cherries and offering flowers and fruit, filled them with anger and disgust. The affected gesture and subdued voice of the courtier, on the other hand, roused an equal contempt. As Lord John turned, he saw them. He did not quite guess their relationship, but supposed they were cadets of the house, it being customary for those in any way connected to serve the head of the family. He noted the flag-basket in Felix's hand, and naturally imagined that he had been at work. "'You have been to, to plough, eh?' he said, intending to be very gracious and condescending. "'Very healthy employment. The land requires some rain, does it not? Still I trust it will not rain till I am home.' "'For my plume's sake,' tossing his head. "'Allow me.' And as he passed, he offered Oliver a couple of cigars. "'One each,' he added. "'The best Devon.' Oliver took the cigars mechanically, holding them as if they had been vipers at arm's length till the courtier had left the garden and the hedge interposed. Then he threw them into the water-carrier. The best tobacco, indeed the only real tobacco, came from the warm Devon land, but little of it reached so far, on account of the distance, 
the difficulties of intercourse, the rare occasions on which the merchant succeeded in escaping the vexatious interference, the downright robbery of the way. Intercourse was often entirely closed by war. These cigars, therefore, were worth their weight in silver, and such tobacco could be obtained only by those about the court, as a matter of favour, too, rather than by purchase. Lord John would, indeed, have stared aghast, had he seen the rustic to whom he had given so valuable a present cast them into a ditch. He rode towards the maple gate, excusing his haste volubly to Sir Constance, who was on foot, and walked beside him a little way, pressing him to take some refreshment. His sons overtook the baron as he walked towards home, and walked by his side in silence. Sir Constance was full of his fruit. "'The wall cherry,' said he, "'will soon have a few ripe.' Oliver swore a deep but soundless oath in his chest. Sir Constance continued talking about his fruit and flowers, entirely oblivious of the silent anger of the pair beside him. As they approached the house, the warder blew his horn thrice for noon. It was also the signal for dinner. End of Part 2, Chapter 5part 2 chapter 6 of after london this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by ruth golding after london or wild england by richard jeffreys part 2 wild england chapter 6 the forest track when the canoe was finished oliver came to help felix launch it and they rolled it on logs down to the place where the stream formed a pool. But when it was afloat, as Oliver had foretold, it did not swim upright in the water. It had not been shaped accurately, and one side was higher out of the water than the other. Felix was so disgusted at this failure that he would not listen to anything Oliver could suggest. He walked back to the spot where he had worked so many weeks, and sat down with his face turned from the pool. It was not so much the actual circumstance which depressed him, as the long train of untoward incidents which had preceded it for years past. These seemed to have accumulated, till now this comparatively little annoyance was like the last straw. Oliver followed him, and said that the defect could be remedied by placing ballast on the more buoyant side of the canoe, to bring it down to the level of the other. Or, perhaps, if some more wood were cut away on the heavier side, that it would cause it to rise. He offered to do the work himself, but Felix, in his gloomy mood, would not answer him. Oliver returned to the pool, and getting into the canoe, pulled it up and down the stream. It answered perfectly, and could be easily managed. The defect was more apparent than real, for when a person sat in the canoe, his weight seemed to bring it nearly level. It was only when empty that it canted to one side. He came back again to Felix, and pointed this out to him. 
the attempt was useless. The boat might answer the purpose perfectly well, but it was not the boat Felix had intended it to be. It did not come up to his ideal. Oliver was now somewhat annoyed at Felix's sullen silence, so he drew the canoe partly on shore to prevent it from floating away, and then left him to himself. Nothing more was said about it for a day or two. Felix did not go near the spot where he had worked so hard and so long. But on the Saturday Philip came home as usual, and as there was now no secret about the canoe, went down to look at it with Oliver. They pushed it off and floated two or three miles down the stream, hauling it on the shore past the fallen fir-tree, and then with a cord towed it back again. The canoe, with the exception of the trifling deficiency alluded to, was a good one, and thoroughly serviceable. They endeavoured again to restore Felix's opinion of it, and an idea occurring to Philip, he said a capital plan would be to add an outrigger, and so balance it perfectly. But though usually quick to adopt ideas when they were good, in this case Felix was too much out of conceit with himself. He would listen to nothing. Still, he could not banish it from his mind, though now ashamed to return to it, after so obstinately refusing all suggestions. He wandered aimlessly about in the woods, till one day he found himself in the path that led to Heron Bay. Strolling to the shore of the great lake, he sat down and watched a vessel sailing afar off slowly before the east wind. The thought presently occurred to him that the addition of an outrigger in the manner Philip had mentioned would enable him to carry a sail. The canoe could not otherwise support a sail, unless a very small one, merely for going before the breeze, but with such a sail as the outrigger would bear he could venture much farther away from land. His voyage might be much more extended, and his labour with the paddle lessened. This filled him with fresh energy. He returned, and at once recommenced work. Oliver, finding that he was again busy at it, came and insisted upon assisting. With his help the work progressed rapidly. He used the tools so deftly as to accomplish more in an hour than Felix could in a day. The outrigger consisted of a beam of poplar, sharpened at both ends, and held at some six or seven feet from the canoe by two strong cross-pieces. A mast, about the same height as the canoe was long, was then set up. It was made from a young fir-tree. Another smaller fir supplied the yard, which extended fore and aft, nearly the length of the boat. The sail, of coarse canvas, was not very high, but long, and rather broader at each end where the rope attached it to the prow and stern, or rather the two prows. Thus arranged, it was not so well suited for running straight before the wind as for working into it a feat never attempted by the ships of the time. Oliver was delighted with the appearance of the boat, so much so that now and then he announced his intention of accompanying Felix on his voyage. 
But after a visit to the town and a glance at the Princess Lucia, his resolution changed. Yet he wavered, one time openly reproaching himself for enduring such a life of inaction and ignominy, and at another deriding Felix and his visionary schemes. The canoe was now completed. It was tried on the pool, and found to float exactly as it should. It had now to be conveyed to Heron Bay. The original intention was to put it on a cart, but the rude carts used on the estate could not very well carry it, and a sledge was substituted. Several times, during the journey through the forest, the sledge had to be halted, while the underwood was cut away to permit of its passing, and once a slough had to be filled up with branches hewn from fir-trees and bundles of fern. These delays made it evening before the shore of the creek was reached. It was but a little inlet, scarce a bowshot wide at the entrance, and coming to a point inland. Here the canoe was left in charge of three serfs, who were ordered to build a hut and stay beside it. Some provisions were sent next day on the backs of other serfs, and in the afternoon, it was Saturday, all three brothers arrived, the canoe was launched, and they started for a trial sail. With a south wind they ran to the eastward at a rapid pace, keeping close to the shore till within a mile of White Horse. There they brought to by steering the canoe dead against the wind, then transferring the steering paddle, a rather large one made for the purpose, to the other end, and readjusting the sail, the outrigger being still to leeward, they ran back at an equal speed. The canoe answered perfectly, and Felix was satisfied. He now dispatched his tools and various weapons to the hut to be put on board. His own peculiar yew-bow he kept to the last at home. It, and his chest bound with hide, would go with him on the last day. Although in his original purpose Felix had designed to go forth without any one being aware of his intention, the circumstances which had arisen, and the necessary employment of so many men, had let out the secret to some degree. The removal of the tools and weapons, the crossbow, darts, and spear, still more attracted attention. But little or nothing was said about it, though the baron and baroness could not help but observe these preparations. The baron deliberately shut his eyes and went about his gardening. He was now, too, busy with the first mowing. In his heart, perhaps, he felt that he had not done altogether right in so entirely retiring from the world. By doing so, he had condemned his children to loneliness and to be regarded with contempt. Too late now, he could only obstinately persist in his course. The baroness, inured for so many, many years to disappointment, had contracted her view of life till it scarcely extended beyond mere physical comfort. Nor could she realise the idea of Felix's approaching departure. When he was actually gone, it would, perhaps, come home to her. All was now ready. 
and Felix was only waiting for the feast of St. James to pay a last visit to Aurora at Tymer Castle. The morning before the day of the feast, Felix and Oliver set out together. They had not lived altogether in harmony, but now, at this approaching change, Oliver felt that he must bear Felix company. Oliver rode his beautiful knight. He wore his plumed hat and precious sword, and carried his horseman's lance. Felix rode a smaller horse, useful but far from handsome. He carried his yew bow and hunting-knife. Tymer Castle was situated fifteen miles to the south. It was the last outpost of civilization. Beyond it there was nothing but forest and the wild open plains, the home of the gypsies. This circumstance of position had given Baron Tymer, in times past, a certain importance more than was due to the size of his estate or the number of his retainers. During an invasion of the gypsies his castle bore the brunt of the war, and its gallant defence, indeed, broke their onward progress. So many fell in endeavouring to take it that the rest were disheartened, and only scattered bands penetrated beyond. For this service the baron received the grant of various privileges. He was looked on as a pillar of the state, and was welcome at the court. But it proved an injury to him in the end. His honours and the high society they led him into were too great for the comparative smallness of his income. Rich in flocks and herds, he had but little coin. High-spirited and rather fond of display, he could not hold back. He launched forth with the usual result of impoverishment, mortgage, and debt. He had hoped to obtain the command of an army in the wars that broke out from time to time. It was, indeed, universally admitted that he was in every respect qualified for such a post. The courtiers and others, however, jealous, as is ever the case, of ability and real talent, debarred him by their intrigues from attaining his object. Pride prevented him from acquiescing in this defeat. He strove by display and extravagance to keep himself well to the front, flaunting himself before the eyes of all. This course could not last long. He was obliged to retire to his estate, which narrowly escaped forfeiture to his creditors. So ignominious an end after such worthy service was, however, prevented by the personal interference of the old prince, who from his private resources paid off the most pressing creditors. To the last the old prince received him as a friend, and listened to his counsel. Timer was ever in hopes that some change in the balance of parties would give him his opportunity. When the young prince succeeded, he was clever enough to see that the presence of such men about his court gave it a stability, and he, too, invited Timer to tender his advice. The baron's hopes now rose higher than ever, but again he was disappointed. The new prince, himself incapable, disliked and distrusted talent. The years passed, 
and the baron obtained no appointment. Still he strained his resources to the utmost to visit the court as often as possible. Still he believed that sooner or later a turn of the wheel would elevate him. There had existed between the houses of Tymer and Aquila the bond of half-friendship. The gauntlets, hoofs, and rings were preserved by both, and the usual presents passed thrice a year, at midsummer, Christmas, and Lady Day. Not much personal intercourse had taken place, however, for some years, until Felix was attracted by the beauty of the Lady Aurora. Proud, showy, and pushing, Timer could not understand the feelings which led his half-friend to retire from the arena and busy himself with cherries and water-wheels. On the other hand, Constance rather looked with quiet derision on the ostentation of the other. Thus there was a certain distance, as it were, between them. Baron Timer could not, of course, be ignorant of the attachment between his daughter and Felix. Yet as much as possible he ignored it. He never referred to Felix. If his name was incidentally mentioned, he remained silent. The truth was, he looked higher for Lady Aurora. He could not, in courtesy, discourage even in the faintest manner the visits of his friend's son. The knightly laws of honour would have forbidden so mean a course. Nor would his conscience permit him to do so, remembering the old days when he and the baron were glad companions together, and how the baron Aquila was the first to lead troops to his assistance in the gypsy war. Still, he tacitly disapproved. He did not encourage. Felix felt that he was not altogether welcome. He recognised the sense of restraint that prevailed when he was present. It deeply hurt his pride, and nothing but his love for Aurora could have enabled him to bear up against it. The galling part of it was that he could not in his secret heart condemn the father for evidently desiring a better alliance for his child. This was the strongest of the motives that had determined him to seek the unknown. If anything, the baron would have preferred Oliver as a suitor for his daughter. He sympathised with Oliver's fiery spirit, and admired his feats of strength and dexterity with sword and spear. He had always welcomed Oliver heartily, and paid him every attention. This, to do Oliver justice, was one reason why he determined to accompany his brother, thinking that if he was there he could occupy attention and thus enable Felix to have more opportunity to speak with Aurora. The two rode forth from the courtyard early in the morning, and passing through the whole length of the enclosure within the stockade, issued at the south barrier, and almost immediately entered the forest. They rather checked their horses' haste, fresh as the animals were from the stable, but could not quite control their spirits, for the walk of a horse is even half as fast again while he is full of vigour. The turn of the track soon shut out the stockade. They were alone in the woods. Long since, early as they were, the sun had dried the dew. 
for his beams warm the atmosphere quickly as the spring advances towards summer. But it was still fresh and sweet among the trees, and even Felix, though bound on so gloomy an errand, could not choose but feel the joyous influence of the morning. Oliver sang aloud in his rich, deep voice, and the thud, thud of the horse's hoofs kept time to the ballad. The thrushes flew but a little way back from the path as they passed, and began to sing again directly they were by. The whistling of blackbirds came from afar where there were open glades or a running stream. The notes of the cuckoo became fainter and fainter as they advanced farther from the stockade, for the cuckoo likes the woodlands that immediately border on cultivation. For some miles the track was broad, passing through thickets of thorn and low hawthorn trees with immense masses of tangled underwood between, brambles and woodbine twisted and matted together, impervious above but hollow beneath. Under these they could hear the bush-hens running to and fro and scratching at the dead leaves which strewed the ground. Sounds of clucking deeper in betrayed the situation of their nests. Rushes and the dead sedges of last year, up through which the green fresh leaves were thrusting themselves, in some places stood beside the way, fringing the thorns where the hollow ground often held the water from rainstorms. Out from these bushes a rabbit occasionally started, and bounded across to the other side. Here, where there were so few trees, and the forests chiefly consisted of bush, they could see some distance on either hand, and also a wide breadth of the sky. After a time the thorn-bushes were succeeded by ashwood, where the trees stood closer to the path, contracting the view. It was moister here, the hoofs cut into the grass which was coarse and rank. The trees growing so close together destroyed themselves, their lower branches rubbed together and were killed, so that in many spots the riders could see a long way between the trunks. Every time the wind blew, they could hear a distant cracking of branches, as the dead boughs, broken by the swaying of the trees, fell off and came down. Had anyone attempted to walk into the forest there, they would have sunk above the ankle in soft, decaying wood, hidden from sight by thick vegetation. Wood-pigeons rose every minute from these ash-trees with a loud clatter of wings. Their calls resounded continually, now deep in the forest, and now close at hand. It was evident that a large flock of them had their nesting-place here, and indeed their nests of twigs could be frequently seen from the path. There seemed no other birds. Again the forest changed, and the track, passing on higher ground, entered among firs. These, too, had killed each other by growing so thickly. The lower branches of many were dead, and there was nothing but a little green at the tops, while in many places there was an open space where they had decayed away altogether. Brambles covered the ground in these open places, brambles and firs now bright with golden blossom. The jays screeched loudly, startled as the riders passed under them, and fluttered away. Rabbits, which they saw again here, 
dived into their burrows. Between the firs the track was very narrow, and they could not conveniently ride side by side. Oliver took the lead, and Felix followed. End of Part 2, Chapter 6 Part 2, Chapter 7 of After London This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding After London, or Wild England, by Richard Jefferies Part 2, Wild England, Chapter 7, The Forest Track Continued Once as they trotted by, a pheasant rose screaming from the firs, and flew before them down the track. Just afterwards, Felix, who had been previously looking very carefully into the firs upon his right hand, suddenly stopped, and Oliver, finding this, pulled up as quickly as he could, thinking that Felix wished to tighten his girth. "'What is it?' he asked, turning round in his saddle. "'Hush!' said Felix, dismounting. His horse, trained to hunting, stood perfectly still, and would have remained within a few yards of the spot by the hour together. Oliver reined back, seeing Felix about to bend and string his bow. "'Bushman!' whispered Felix, as he, having fitted the loop to the horn notch, drew forth an arrow from his girdle, where he carried two or three more ready to hand than in the quiver on his shoulder. "'I thought I saw signs of them some time since, and now I am nearly sure. Stay here a moment.' He stepped aside from the track in among the firs, which just there were far apart, and went to a willow-bush standing by some firs. He had noticed that one small branch on the outer part of the bush was snapped off, though green, and only hung by the bark. The wood-cattle, had they browsed upon it, would have nibbled the tenderest leaves at the end of the bough. Nor did they usually touch willow, for the shoots are bitter and astringent. Nor would the deer touch it in the spring, when they had so wide a choice of food. Nothing could have broken the branch in that manner, unless it was the hand of a man, or a blow with a heavy stick, wielded by a human hand. On coming to the bush, he saw that the fracture was very recent, for the bough was perfectly green, it had not turned brown, and the bark was still soft with sap. It had not been cut with a knife or any sharp instrument, it had been broken by rude violence, and not divided. The next thing to catch his eye was the appearance of a larger branch, farther inside the bush. This was not broken, but a part of the bark was abraded, and even torn up from the wood, as if by the impact of some hard substance, as a stone thrown with great force. He examined the ground, but there was no stone visible, and on again looking at the bark, he concluded that it had not been done with a stone at all, because the abraded portion was not cut. The blow had been delivered by something without edges or projections. He had now no longer any doubt that the lesser branch outside had been broken, and the large inside branch bruised by the passage of a bushman's throw-club. These, their only missile weapons, are usually made of crab-tree, 
and consist of a very thin, short handle, with a large, heavy, and smooth knob. With these they can bring down small game, as rabbits or hares, or a fawn, even breaking the legs of deer, or the large birds, as the wood turkeys. Stealing up noiselessly within ten yards, the bushman throws his club with great force, and rarely misses his aim. If not killed at once, the game is certain to be stunned, and is much more easily secured than if wounded with an arrow. For with an arrow in its wing a large bird will flutter along the ground, and perhaps creep into sedges or under impenetrable bushes. Deprived of motion by the blow of the club, it can, on the other hand, be picked up without trouble and without the aid of a dog, and if not dead, is dispatched by a twist of the bushman's fingers or a thrust from his spud. The spud is at once his dagger, his knife and fork, his chisel, his grub-axe, and his gouge. It is a piece of iron, rarely or never of steel, for he does not know how to harden it, about ten inches long, an inch and a half wide at the top or broadest end, where it is shaped and sharpened like a chisel, only with the edge not straight but sloping, and from thence tapering to a point at the other, the pointed part being four-sided, like a nail. It has indeed been supposed that the original spud was formed from a large wrought-iron nail, such as the ancients used, sharpened on a stone at one end, and beaten out flat at the other. This instrument has a handle in the middle, halfway between the chisel end and the point. The handle is of horn or bone, the spud being put through the hollow of the bone, smoothed to fit the hand. With the chisel end he cuts up his game and his food. The edge, being sloping, is drawn across the meat and divides it. With this end, too, he fashions his club and his traps, and digs up the roots he uses. The other end he runs into his meat as a fork, or thrusts it into the neck of his game to kill it and let out the blood, or, with it, stabs a sleeping enemy. The stab delivered by the bushman can always be distinguished, because the wound is invariably square, and thus a clue only too certain has often been afforded to the assassin of many an unfortunate hunter. Whatever the bushman in this case had hurled his club at, the club had gone into the willow-bush, snapping the light branch, and leaving its mark upon the bark of the larger. A moment's reflection convinced Felix that the bushman had been in chase of a pheasant. Only a few moments previously a pheasant had flown before them down the track, and where there was one pheasant there were generally several more in the immediate neighbourhood. The bushmen were known to be peculiarly fond of the pheasant, pursuing them all the year round without reference to the breeding season, and so continuously that it was believed they caused these birds to be much less numerous, notwithstanding the vast extent of the forests, than they would otherwise have been. From the fresh appearance of the snapped bough, the bushman must have passed but a few hours previously, probably at the dawn, and was very likely concealed at that moment near at hand in the forest, perhaps within a hundred yards. 
Felix looked carefully round, but could see nothing. There were the trees, not one of them large enough to hide a man behind it. The firs' branches were small and scattered, and there was not sufficient fern to conceal anything. The keenest glance could discern nothing more. There were no footmarks on the ground, indeed the dry, dead leaves and fir-needles could hardly have received any impression, and up in the firs the branches were thin, and the sky could be seen through them. Whether the bushman was lying in some slight depression of the ground, or whether he had covered himself with dead leaves and fir-needles, or whether he had gone on and was miles away, there was nothing to show. But of the fact that he had been there, Felix was perfectly certain. He returned towards Oliver, thoughtful, and not without some anxiety, for he did not like the idea, though there was really little or no danger, of these human wild beasts being so near Aurora, while he should so soon be far away. Thus occupied he did not heed his steps, and suddenly felt something soft under his feet which struggled. Instantaneously he sprang as far as he could, shuddering, for he had crushed an adder, and but just escaped, by his involuntary and mechanical leap, from its venom. In the warm sunshine the viper, in its gravid state, had not cared to move, as usual on hearing his approach, he had stepped full upon it. He hastened from the spot, and rejoined Oliver in a somewhat shaken state of mind. Common as such an incident was in the woods, where sandy soil warned the hunter to be careful, it seemed ominous that particular morning, and, joined with the discovery of bushman traces, quite destroyed his sense of the beauty of the day. On hearing the condition of the willow boughs, Oliver agreed as to the cause, and said that they must remember to warn the barren shepherds that the bushmen, who had not been seen for some time, were about. Soon afterwards they emerged from the sombre firs, and crossed a wide and sloping ground, almost bare of trees, where a forest fire last year had swept away the underwood. A verdant growth of grass was now springing up. Here they could canter side by side. The sunshine poured down, and birds were singing joyously. But they soon passed it, and checked their speed on entering the trees again. Tall beeches with round smooth trunks stood thick and close upon the dry and rising ground. Their boughs met overhead, forming a green continuous arch for miles. The space between was filled with brake-fern, now fast growing up, and the track itself was green with moss. As they came into this beautiful place, a red stag, startled from his browsing, bounded down the track, his swift leaps carried him away like the wind. In another moment he left the path and sprang among the fern, and was seen only in glimpses as he passed between the beeches. Squirrels ran up the trunks as they approached. They could see many on the ground in among the trees, and passed under others on the branches high above them. Woodpeckers flashed across the avenue. 
Once Oliver pointed out the long lean flank of a grey pig, or fern hog, as the animal rushed away among the brake. There were several glades, from one of which they startled a few deer, whose tails only were seen as they bounded into the underwood. But after the glades came the beeches again. Beeches always form the most beautiful forest, beeches and oak, and though nearing the end of their journey, they regretted when they emerged from these trees and saw the castle before them. The ground suddenly sloped down into a valley beyond which rose the downs. The castle stood on a green isolated low hill, about halfway across the vale. To the left a river wound past, to the right the beech forest extended as far as the eye could see. The slope at their feet had been cleared of all but a few hawthorn bushes. It was not enclosed, but a neat herd was there with his cattle half a mile away, sitting himself at the foot of a beech, while the cattle grazed below him. Down in the valley the stockade began. It was not wide, but long. The enclosure extended on the left to the bank of the river, and two fields on the other side of it. On the right it reached a mile and a half, or nearly, the whole of which was overlooked from the spot where they had passed. Within the enclosures the corn crops were green and flourishing. Horses and cattle, ricks and various buildings, were scattered about it. The town, or cottages of the serfs, were on the bank of the river immediately beyond the castle. On the downs, which rose a mile or more on the other side of the castle, sheep were feeding. Part of the ridge was wooded and part open. Thus the cultivated and enclosed valley was everywhere shut in with woods and hills. The isolated round hill on which the castle stood was itself enclosed with a second stockade. The edge of the brow above that again was defended by a stout high wall of flints and mortar, crenellated at the top. There were no towers or bastions. An old and ivy-grown building stood inside the wall. It dated from the time of the ancients. It had several gables, and was roofed with tiles. This was the dwelling-house. The gardens were situated on the slope between the wall and the inner stockade. Peaceful as the scene appeared, it had been the site of furious fighting not many years ago. The downs trended to the south, where the Romany and the Zingari resided, and a keen watch was kept both from the wall and from the hills beyond. They now rode slowly down the slope, and in a few minutes reached the barrier or gateway in the outer stockade. They had been observed and the guard called by the warden, but as they approached were recognised, and the gate swang open before them. Walking their horses they crossed to the hill, and were as easily admitted to the second enclosure. At the gate of the wall they dismounted, and waited while the warden carried the intelligence of their arrival to the family. A moment later, and the baron's son advanced from the porch, and from the open window the Baroness and Aurora beckoned to them. End of Part 2, Chapter 7
Part Two, Chapter Eight of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies. Part Two, Wild England, Chapter Eight, Timer Castle. Soon afterwards, the hollow sound of the warden's horn from the watch over the gate of the wall proclaimed the hour of noon, and they all assembled for dinner in the banqueting-chamber. The apartment was on the ground floor, and separated from the larger hall only by an internal wall. The house, erected in the time of the ancients, was not designed for our present style of life. It possessed, indeed, many comforts and conveniences which are scarcely now to be found in the finest palaces, but it lacked the breadth of construction which our architects have now in view. In the front there were originally only two rooms, extensive for those old days, but not sufficiently so for ours. One of these had therefore been enlarged by throwing into it a back room and part of the entrance, and even then it was not long enough for the baron's retainers, and at feast-time a wooden shed was built opposite and up to the window, to continue, as it were, the apartment out of doors. Workmen were busy putting up this shed when they arrived. The second apartment retained its ancient form, and was used as the dining-room on ordinary days. It was lighted by a large window, now thrown wide open, that the sweet spring air might enter which window was the pride of the baroness, for it contained more true glass than any window in the palace of the prince. The glass made now is not transparent, but merely translucent. It indeed admits light after a fashion, but it is thick and cannot be seen through. These panes were almost all, the central casement wholly, of ancient glass, preserved with the greatest care through the long years past. Three tables were arranged in an open square. The baron and baroness's chairs of oak faced the window. The guests sat at the other tables, sideways to them. The servants moved on the outer side, and thus placed the food before them without pushing against or incommoding them. A fourth table was placed in a corner between the fireplace and the window. At it sat the old nurse, the housekeeper, frequently arising to order the servants, and the baron's henchman, who had taught him to ride, but now, grey and aged, could not mount himself without assistance, and had long ceased from active service. Already eight or nine guests had arrived besides Felix and Oliver. Some had ridden a great distance to be present at the house-day. They were all nobles, richly dressed. One or two of the eldest were wealthy and powerful men, and the youngest was the son and heir of the Earl of Esserton, who was then the favourite at court. Each had come with his personal attendants. The young Lord Durand brought with him twenty-five retainers, and six gentlemen-friends, all of whom were lodged in the town, the gentlemen taking their meals at the castle at the same time as the baron, 
but owing to lack of room, in another apartment by themselves. Durand was placed, or rather quietly helped himself to a seat, next to the Lady Aurora. And of all the men there present, certainly there was none more gallant and noble than he. His dark eyes, his curling hair short, but brought in a thick curl over his forehead, his lips well-shaped, his chin round and somewhat prominent, the slight moustache, no other hair on the face, formed the very ideal of what many women look for in a man. But it was his bright, lively conversation, the way in which his slightly swarthy complexion flushed with animation, the impudent assurance and yet generous warmth of his manner, and indeed of his feelings, which had given him the merited reputation of being the very flower of the nobles. With such a reputation, backed with the great wealth and power of his father, gentlemen competed with each other to swell his train. He could not indeed entertain all that came, and was often besieged with almost as large a crowd as the prince himself. He took as his right the chair next to Aurora, to whom, indeed, he had been paying unremitting attention all the morning. She was laughing heartily as she sat down at some sally of his upon a beauty at the court. The elder men were placed highest up the tables and nearest the host, but to the astonishment of all, and not the least of himself, Oliver was invited by the baron to sit by his side. Oliver could not understand this special mark of favour. The others, though far too proud for a moment to resent what they might have deemed a slight upon them, at once began to search their minds for a reason. They knew the baron as an old intriguer. They attached a meaning, whether intended or not, to his smallest action. Felix, crowded out, as it were, and unnoticed, was forced to take his seat at the end of the table, nearest that set apart in the corner for the aged and honoured servitors of the family. Only a few feet intervened between him and ancient henchmen, and he could not but overhear their talk among themselves, whispered as it was. He had merely shaken hands with Aurora. The crowd in the drawing-room, and the marked attentions of Durand, had prevented the exchange of a single word between them. As usual, the sense of neglect and injury over which he had so long brooded, with little or no real cause, considering, of course, his position, and that the world can only see our coats and not our hearts, under these entirely accidental circumstances rose up again within him, and blinded him to the actual state of things. His seat, the lowest and the nearest to the servitors, was in itself a mark of the low estimation in which he was held. The Lord Durand had been placed next to Aurora as a direct encouragement to him, and a direct hint to himself not to presume. Doubtless Durand had been at the castle many times, not improbably already been accepted by the Baron, and not altogether refused by Aurora. As a fact, though delighted with her beauty and conversation, Durand's presence was entirely due to the will of his father, the Earl, 
who wished to maintain friendly relations with Baron Thymer, and even then he would not have come had not the lovely weather invited him to ride into the forest. It was, however, so far true that though his presence was accidental, yet he was fast becoming fascinated by one who, girl though she was, was stronger in mind than he. Now Aurora, knowing that her father's eye was on her, dared not look towards Felix, lest by an open and pronounced conduct she should be the cause of his being informed that his presence was not desirable. She knew that the baron only needed a pretext to interfere, and was anxious to avoid offering him a chance. Felix, seeing her glance bent downwards or towards her companion, and never all the time turned to him, not unnaturally, but too hastily, concluded that she had been dazzled by Durand and the possibility of an alliance with his powerful family. He was discarded, worthless, and of no account. He had nothing but his sword. Nay, he had not a sword, he was only an archer, a footman. Angry, jealous, and burning with inward annoyance, despising himself, since all others despised him, scarce able to remain at the table, Felix was almost beside himself and did not answer nor heed the remarks of the gentleman sitting by him, who put him down as an ill-bred churl. For the form's sake, indeed, he put his lips to the double-handed cup of fine ale, which continually circulated round the table, and was never allowed to be put down. One servant had nothing else to do but to see that its progress never stopped. But he drank nothing, and ate nothing. He could not swallow. How visionary, how weak and feeble now, seemed the wild scheme of the canoe and his proposed voyage. Even should it succeed, years must elapse before he could accomplish anything substantial, while here were men who really had what he could only think of or imagine. The silver chain or sword-belt of Durand—the sword and the dagger were not worn at the banquet, nor in the house, they were received by the marshal and deposited in his care, a precaution against quarrelling. Solid silver links passing over his shoulder were real, actual things. All the magnificence that he could call up by the exercise of his imagination was but imagination a dream no more to be seen by others than the air itself. The dinner went on, and the talk became more noisy. The trout, the chicken, the thyme lamb, trapped on the hills by the shepherds, the plover eggs, the sirloin, the pastry, the baroness superintended the making of it herself. All the profusion of the table rather set him against food than tempted him, nor could he drink the tiny drop, as it were, of ancient brandy, sent round to each guest at the conclusion, precious as liquid gold, for it had been handed down from the ancients, and when once the cask was empty it could not be refilled. 
The dessert, the strawberries, the nuts and walnuts, carefully preserved with a little salt, and shaken in the basket from time to time that they might not become mouldy. The apples, the honey in the comb with slices of white bread, nothing pleased him. Nor did he drink, otherwise than the sip demanded by courtesy of the thin wine of Gloucester, costly as it was, grown in the vineyard there, and shipped across the lake, and rendered still more expensive by risk of pirates. This was poured into flagons of maple-wood, which, like the earthenware cup of ale, were never allowed to touch the board till the dinner was over. Wearily the time went on. Felix glanced more and more often at the sky seen through the casement, eagerly desiring to escape, and at least to be alone. At last, how long it seemed, the baron rose, and immediately the rest did the same, and they drank the health of the prince. Then a servitor brought in a pile of cigars upon a carved wooden tray, like a large platter, but with a rim. "'These,' said the baron, again rising, the signal to all to cease conversing and to listen, "'are a present from my gracious and noble friend the Earl of Essiton.' He looked towards Durand. "'Not less kindly carried by Lord Durand. "'I could have provided only our own coarse tobacco, "'but these are the best Devon.' "'The ladies now left the table, "'Aurora escorted by Durand, the Baroness by Oliver. "'Oliver, indeed, was in the highest spirits. "'He had eaten heartily of all, especially the sweet thyme lamb, "'and drunk as freely.' He was in his element, his laugh the loudest, his talk the liveliest. Directly Durand returned, he had gone even a part of the way upstairs towards the drawing-room with Aurora, a thing a little against etiquette, he took his chair, formality being now at an end, and placed it by Oliver. They seemed to become friends at once by sympathy of mind and taste. Round them the rest gradually grouped themselves, so that presently Felix, who did not move, found himself sitting alone at the extreme end of the table, quite apart, for the old retainers who dined at the separate table had quitted the apartment when the wine was brought in. Freed from the restraint of the ladies, the talk now became extremely noisy. The blue smoke from the long cigars filled the great apartment. One only remained untouched, that placed before Felix. Suddenly it struck him that thus sitting alone and apart he should attract attention. He therefore drew his chair to the verge of the group, but remained silent and as far off as ever. Presently the arrival of five more guests caused a stir and confusion, in the midst of which he escaped into the open air. He wandered towards the gate of the wall, passing the wooden shed where the clink of hammers resounded, glanced at the sundial, which showed the hour of three, three weary hours had they feasted, and went out into the gardens. Still going on, he descended the slope, and, not much heeding whither he was going, took the road that led into town. It consisted of some hundred or more houses, 
built of wood and thatched, placed without plan or arrangement on the bank of the stream. Only one long street ran through it, the rest were mere byways. All these were inhabited by the baron's retainers, but the number and apparently small extent of the houses did not afford correct data for the actual amount of the population. In these days the people, as is well known, find much difficulty in marrying. It seems only possible for a certain proportion to marry, and hence there are always a great number of young or single men out of all ratio to the houses. At the sound of the bugle the baron could reckon on at least three hundred men flocking without a minute's delay to man the wall. In an hour more would arrive from the outer places, and by nightfall, if the summons went forth in the morning, his shepherds and swineherds would arrive, and these together would add some hundred and fifty to the garrison. Next must be reckoned the armed servants of the house, the baron's personal attendants, the gentlemen who formed his train, his sons, and the male relations of the family. These certainly were not less than fifty. Altogether over five hundred men, well armed and accustomed to the use of their weapons, would range themselves beneath his banner. Two of the buildings in the town were of brick, the material carried hither, for there was no clay or stone thereabouts. They were not far apart. The one was the toll-house, where all merchants or traders paid the charges in corn or kind due to the baron. The other was the court-house, where he sat to administer justice, and decide causes, or to send the criminal to the gibbet. These alone of the buildings were of any age, for the wooden houses were extremely subject to destruction by fire, and twice in the baron's time half the town had been laid in ashes, only to rise again in a few weeks. Timber was so abundant and so ready of access, it seemed a loss of labour to fetch stone or brick, or to use the flints of the hills. About the doors of the two inns there were gathered groups of people. Among them the liveries of the nobles visiting the castle were conspicuous. The place was full of them, the stables were filled, and their horses were picketed under the trees and even in the street. Every minute the numbers increased as others arrived. Men, too, who had obtained permission of their lords, came in on foot, ten or twelve travelling together for mutual protection, for the feuds of their masters exposed them to frequent attack. All, except the nobles, were disarmed at the barrier by the warden and guard, that peace might be preserved in the enclosure. The folk, at the moment he passed, were watching the descent of three covered wagons from the forest track, in which were travelling the ladies of as many noble families. Some, indeed, of the youngest and boldest ride on horseback, but the ladies chiefly move in these wagons, which are fitted up with considerable comfort, and are necessary to sleep in when the camp is formed by the wayside at night. None noticed him as he went by, except a group of three cottage girls and a serving-woman, an attendant of a lady visitor at the castle. He heard them allude to him, he quickened his pace, but heard one say, 
He's nobody. He hasn't even got a horse.' "'Yes, he is,' replied the serving-woman. "'He's Oliver's brother, and I can tell you my Lord Oliver is somebody, the Princess Lucia.' and she made the motion of kissing with her lips. Felix, ashamed and annoyed to the last degree, stepped rapidly from the spot. The serving-woman, however, was right in a measure. The real or supposed favour shown Oliver by the prince's sister, the Duchess of Deverell, had begun to be bruited abroad, and this was the secret reason why the Baron had shown Oliver so much and so marked an attention, even more than he had paid to Lord Durand. Full well he knew the extraordinary influence possessed by ladies of rank and position. From what we can learn out of the scanty records of the past, it was so even in the days of the ancients. It is a hundredfold more so in these times, when, although every noble must of necessity be taught to read and write, as a matter of fact, the men do neither, but all the correspondence of kings and princes, and the diplomatic documents and notices and so forth, are, one and all, almost without a single exception, drawn up by women. They know the secret and hidden motives of courts, and have this great advantage, that they can use their knowledge without personal fear since women are never seriously interfered with, but are protected by all. The one terrible and utterly shameful instance to the contrary had not occurred at the time of which we are now speaking, and it was and is still repudiated by every man, from the knight to the boys who gather acorns for the swine. Oliver himself had no idea whatever that he was regarded as a favourite lover of the Duchess. He took the welcome that was held out to him as perfectly honest. Plain, straightforward, and honest, Oliver, had he been openly singled out by a queen, would have scorned to give himself an heir for such a reason. But the Baron, deep in intrigue this many a year, looked more profoundly into the possibilities of the future when he kept the young knight at his side. End of Part 2, Chapter 8、Everybody、in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.